Oh, good morning, everybody. It's a beautiful day here in Michigan, and it's good to be in the house of the Lord, and it's good to see so many people here today. Uh, I know there's a camp meeting going on just a few miles north of here, and if you've been watching some of the programs, they've been a blessing, haven't they? And so it's good to be with you here today and to share with you from the Word of God. Uh, for those of you watching online, we give you a warm welcome as well, wherever you are joining us from, and we pray that you will sense God's presence today as well. So uh, uh, my name is Pastor Conrad Vine, and uh, this morning I preached uh, on the topic of Hagar, looking at what the names of God, Elroy, the God who sees me and who hears me in my distress. And today we're going to look at another name of God that we find in the Old Testament. Uh, it's in the story of Moses and the battle against the Amalekites. And so if you have your Bibles with you, I'd invite you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 17. That's the passage we're going to be uh, working our way through. Um, for those of you who don't have your Bibles with you or prefer, the text will be on the screen. And um, so I hope we can follow along one way or another. It's a very famous story when Amalek attacks Israel and they're defeated uh, by the Israelites. And again, um, uh, the, the, the computer doesn't have the right font here, so that should say Jehovah Nissi or the Lord my banner. That's the name of God we're going to be reflecting upon today. And this is the only part of the Bible where this name appears, just like this morning Elroy in uh, Genesis chapter uh, 16 and 17 when Hagar flees from Abraham and Sarah. That's the only part of the Bible that word appears in as well. So we're looking at these names of God because each name of God is a window into his character. And uh, as you look at God has many names in the Bible and different names reflect different aspects of who he is at different times. And depending on your life circumstances, um, those names uh, bring comfort or, or guidance or warning depending on what you're going through. So if you're lying in hospital suffering with cancer, for instance, the Lord is my shepherd is a beautiful name of God. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for thou, the Lord is my shepherd, that is his name, for thou art with me. And so today we're going to be looking at this particular name of God. Uh, it is the Lord, my banner, Yahweh or Jehovah Nissi. It's not a name we often chew upon, but we're going to be looking at it today. So uh, I invite you to bow your heads with me, and we'll invite the presence of the Holy Spirit. Dear Father, we thank you for this beautiful Sabbath day. Uh, we thank you for the freedoms we yet enjoy in this land to gather and worship you according to our conscience. I thank you, Father, for the word that you've given us through your servant Moses here. And I ask that as we reflect on this story, that the lessons it has uh, for us will, will sink deep into our hearts. I ask, Lord, that we will not just feast on this uh, spiritual feast that is before us, but with the strength it gives us, we will walk in a new path in this coming week, that our lives will be changed, that our walk with you will be deeper, and our witness will burn brighter. So, Father, we gather today not just to consume, but to learn and to grow and to become more like you. So, Father, speak through me, speak for me. May your angels guard this place, and may your spirit be the only spirit speaking to our hearts this morning. This is my prayer in Jesus' holy name. Amen. <clears throat> now, for the last six weeks, ever since I was in Wichita, Kansas, I, where I lost my voice, I woke up that Sabbath morning and I literally couldn't speak. So, I whispered from all my way through that day there, and I've gradually been recovering my voice, so I'll be drinking a bit as we go through today's sermon. But I just want to start out, as you can tell from my accent, I'm not from Michigan. Uh, we're going to be looking today at uh, the physical battle, the spiritual battle, and the victorious battle, um, because preachers always talk in threes. It's easier to remember things in threes, so we'll talk about three kinds of battle today. 
I want to start out with a picture that probably you're all very familiar with. Um, it's the month of June, uh, which is not Pride Month in Britain. It's the time when we troop the color. And uh, here you have here over 1,400 soldiers of the Household Division, uh, the, the Grenadier Guards, the Scots Guards, the Welsh Guards, the Irish Guards, the Lifeguards, the Blues and Royals, those the various regiments. And they march through um, the center of London, and they're trooping the color. And it's a sea of pageantry. And so uh, the, the, those reds, the reds, um, those red um, soldiers in red, uh, they're probably the Scotch Guards or the Coldstream Guards. They go back to about the 1580s or 60, early 1600s. Uh, the guys in blue, those are the, um, the Blues and Royals, and the guys in red on the horses are the lifeguards. They're basically are tank divisions. Uh, but what they're doing is trooping the color, and every regiment has its color. It has its banner. And on the banner, it has its battle honors. So you see uh, next to E2R, which is Elizabeth II Regina, Elizabeth Queen, Queen Elizabeth II, you have the, the yellow pieces there. That's the names of the battles where they've survived and won. And so uh, once a year, they troop the color and they mass the, 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 the soldiers of the household division and they march in front of the monarch and they show off their banners. And this isn't just a, this isn't just a ceremonial thing. Because in days gone by, in the fog of battle, knowing your banner was very important. Knowing where your banner was, knowing where the banner was going, whether it was going forward, whether it was going back, whether it was staying stationary, knowing your banner was important. Because in the fog of war, with the smoke blowing around you, you didn't want to get lost. You wanted to stay with your regiment. And so uh, before the banner, before the battles, uh, in days gone by, these banners were paraded before the troops, so they would know, this is the banner that I must follow. And when the banner went forward, the regiment went forward. When the banner um, retreated, the soldiers would fall back. When the banner stopped, they rallied to fend off the enemy attacks. When it was under attack, when the regiment was under attack, the banner represented the Alamo, or the rally point for that regiment. And when planted on top of a hill, that banner represented victory won. So that's just what's been happening in Britain these last few weeks. Um, but in the context of the battle in the, between good and evil, uh, we just want to look at one of these battles here today between Israel and the Amalekites, which we find in Exodus chapter 17. And God reveals himself to the people of Israel and to us today as the Lord my banner, Yahweh Nisi or Jehovah Nisi. That is, we don't just talk about banners in, in, you know, in, in modern military parlance. God himself, one of his names is the Lord my banner. That is where he goes, we go. When he is held high, we are victorious. When his banner is planted on a hill, then the victory over sin has been won. And so we're going to be talking today about the Lord, my banner, one of these names of God that we find in the Old Testament. So let's start by looking out at the physical battle. And um, we're going to start on verse 8. So if you have your Bibles, you can follow me in your hands, in your Bibles. If you want, you can watch on the screen. And it says there, then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. And we say, well, that's kind of interesting. What's going on here? Well, the story here is Israel has just left the promised land. They've just gone through the 10 plagues of Israel. They've just gone through the, the Passover night. They've just crossed the Red Sea. And they're marching along the desert route on the way to Israel, to the promised land. Now, in a few verses, they're going to take a detour down to Sinai, and they're going to spend 40-plus years there. But they're moving towards the promised land. And as they move north from Mount Sinai and from Egypt, they come into the territory of the Amalekites. And the Amalekites are not happy that God's people are moving through their territory. 
So they don't attack God's people head on, but they attack the weakest parts of the column. They attack the stragglers at the rear. And we know that because this is what Moses says to the people of Israel just before he dies. He says, remember the Amalekites. He said, remember what Amalek did to you on your journey out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and struck down all who lagged behind you. He did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from your enemies on every hand, and, uh, and, and the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance to possess, and in the land that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. Do not forget. And so as they were moving out of Egypt on their way to the promised land, the people of Amalek had attacked God's people, but they hadn't attacked them head on, you know, soldier against soldier. They'd gone for the people who were straggling behind. Now, who are the ones who are going to be straggling behind? The strong men? No. The women, the children, the aged, the infirm. They went for the weakest of the weak. They weren't going to fight the soldiers. They started cutting off what we would say the civilians. They, weren't, they were going for the weakest of the weak among God's people, and they killed them. And so Moses says, when you get into the promised land, do not forget what Amalek did to you, because you're going to blot them out from memory one day. And so this cowardly attack by the people of Amalek here in Exodus 17 brings upon them God's condemnation. And who we ask ourselves were the Amalekites. Well, Amalek was the grandson of Esau. We're going to delve into that a bit later on in our sermon today. They were cousins of the Israelites, but they were their implacable enemies. If there ever was a family problem, or there ever was enmity in the family, is between Israel and the Amalekites. Or to be more accurate, it was the Amalekites who hated God's people. They hated God's people. They're implacable enemies. We'll come to why shortly uh, as we go through this sermon together. So we'll come back to the original text. Moses said to Joshua in Exodus 7, Verse 9, choose some men for us and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. And so remember, the people of Amalek have attacked God's people. They've cut off the women, the children, the stragglers, the halt, the lame, the blind, who've been falling behind the column. And so the next day, God says, now you're going to fight them. You're going to meet them head on. And I want you to choose some men. I like this phrase that God does not say to the people of Israel through Moses, he doesn't say, I want you to send all the men out. He says, I want you to choose some men. That is, there are going to be some chosen men who are going to fight for my people. It's not every man is going to do this. Not every man is called to do this. I want you to choose some chosen men, men who are ready for the battles of today, both literal and spiritual. And in every generation, God is also seeking chosen men who will not shrink from the sound of battle, but who are willing to risk everything for God's people. God is looking for chosen men. It is easy in every generation to say, well, I'm not going to be the one who's going to speak up or, and all the rest of it. But God is looking for chosen men in every generation, men of conscience, men of courage, men of compassion, men who are covenant keepers. Men, if you're listening to me today, God is asking you to be a chosen man, to stand for God in your family, in the scenarios, the situations, the temptations you find yourself in. God says, choose some men. Are you a chosen man? Or are you going to sit and watch the battle from the sidelines and watch as somebody else takes the arrows of fate that maybe would otherwise come to you? And God, Moses, he chooses Joshua here. Now, Joshua is Moses' assistant. He's the general commanding the Israelite army. He comes from the tribe of Ephraim, 
and he's one of the 12 12, uh, spies sent into Israel later in the book of Numbers. Now, when we first meet Joshua, before he goes as a spy into Israel, which is after this story here in Exodus 17, his name is not Joshua, it is Hosea, or Hosea, which means salvation. But Moses changes his name to Joshua, which means Jehovah is salvation. So just as many names in the Bible have meanings like Elijah, El means God, E is my, Yah is Jehovah. So Elijah means Yahweh is my God. You know, imagine having a name like that, okay? So the names of the, you find these heroes of faith in the Bible, their name bears a message. I wonder what kind of name do we bear today? When people think of you or me, do they think that is a servant of the living God? That is an ambassador of Jesus Christ? What message does our name convey as we live our lives here in Berrien Springs or wherever we're watching online here? And so Joshua's name means Jehovah is salvation. And he leads the chosen men, men who will not shrink from the sound of battle, but men who will stand up in the battles of their era. Conflict does not mean that God has abandoned us. It simply means we're in the midst of the great controversy. And when God called Jeremiah three times in the book of Jeremiah, God says to him, yes, you're going to be in the middle of a fight, but he says, I am not going to leave you in the fight. So when there is a fight, God does not promise I'm going to take you out of the fight. He promises I'll be with you in the fight. And God is looking for chosen men like that today, men who have a conscience, men who have courage, men who keep the covenant with Jesus Christ, men who have compassion. And these men, who are they defending? They're defending the people who the Amalekites are trying to kill the day before, the women, the children, the lame, the halt, and the blind, the stragglers behind the camp of Israel. So God is looking for men to step up and take their place in the great controversy. So Moses makes every effort to protect the vulnerable and the people of Israel Yes, in this story, the people of Israel fight, but ultimately they trust God for the ultimate victory. The battle belongs to the Lord, as we read later in 2 Chronicles 20 and verse 15. But while Joshua goes into battle, Moses does something else. He doesn't go to battle himself. We read there in verses 10 through 12, it says, So Joshua did as Moses told him, and he fought with the Amalek, or the Amalekites. While Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill... And whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. Whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands, they grew weary. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the sun set. And there are a number of lessons we can learn from this story. Well, first of all, who are these guys? Well, Aaron was a brother of Moses. He was soon to be set aside, ordained as the high priest of Israel. Her, he was a descendant of Judah. Um, he was the son of Caleb, one of the two faithful spies. And so um, Joshua and Hur, they're kind of of the same spiritual lineage. They're both faithful men uh, who are willing to speak up for God and stand up for God in their generation. And Moses, he sits there with raised hands. Now, in 1 Timothy 2 and verse 8, we realize, we read there that God desires that holy men stand and they pray with raised hands. Like in the West, we sit, we kneel, we put our heads down, we put our hands together and we pray. But in 1 Timothy 2, 8, that's not how men are supposed to pray. Uh, We're supposed to stand with uplifted hands and uplifted voices. I want to challenge you today, when when we pray, we go like this. It's a very different experience to if you pray with your hands open like this. Just the change in the physiology, the change in how your body is, changes your experience of prayer. 
Like, Father, here I am, I'm ready to receive what you want to give for me. My open hands means psychologically I'm emotionally and spiritually ready to hear what you would impress upon my heart today. So men, try it. Women as well. Try praying through this week with open hands. The Muslims do it. Many people in the Jewish faith do it. It's a beautiful thing to do. But Moses prays with his hands raised, and while atop the mountain, Moses was engaged in earnest prayer to God, asking for victory over the Amalekites. Yes, we fight, but yes, we pray. We do our best, but we place the outcome in God's hands. And whenever Moses dropped his hands, the Amalekites prevailed. They were winning in the battle in the valley. And when he raised his hands, the Israelites prevailed in the battle. And in permitting this alternation between success and failure, and success and failure, God was teaching his people then, and he's teaching us today, the importance of intercessory prayer. When we pray, God's kingdom advances. When we neglect to pray, God's kingdom does not advance. In fact, it often goes sideways or it goes backwards. We also find in this story here that when, when the leaders of God's people are united, because Aaron, Moses, Hur, and, and Joshua, they were all doing their part in this story. When they acted in coordination and in essential unity, God's kingdom advanced and they won the day. So are we uniting in prayer? Husbands and wives, are you uniting in prayer? Parents and children, are you uniting in prayer? Church family, are we uniting in prayer? When God's people unite and we act in harmony with one another and we submit to the will of God, God's kingdom goes forward. But when we neglect to work in harmony, when we neglect to pray together, God's kingdom does not advance. We also see here the importance of teamwork. Joshua fought, Moses prayed, Aaron and Hur held up Moses' hands, but everybody was essential for the victory. And uh, this morning, we just went through, I don't have it with me, or maybe I do, no I don't, the list of the officers for the nominating committee. And thank you to those who served on the nominating committee. You know, there's somebody in this room who will remain nameless, but I called to say, I've been asked to ask you whether you'd serve on the nominating committee, and um, I have a sense of humor, and I said, and they'd like you to serve in the nominating committee for perpetuity. And um, that person was, well, yes, I'm happy to serve for this two-year cycle, but Maybe not so much in perpetuity. But for those of you who've agreed to serve, I would say thank you from the bottom of my heart. The lights are on, the floors are clean, there are Sabbath school classes, there are deacons and greeters on the doors, there are musicians here. There are many, many cogs in, in, in a body like this. And when God's people work together in harmony, as did Joshua, Moses, um, Aaron, and Hur, then there is victory for God's people. So thank you to those who've agreed to serve on the nominating committee. All of the gifts that God gives his people are essential in the battle against the enemy of souls. Each one of us here today has an important part to play. And as we are faithful in using the talents that God has given us on an individual level, God entrusts more talents to us. That's a sermon for another day. And if we're not faithful in using our God-given talents, God removes them from us and he gives them to somebody else. So use the talents that God has given you today. Now the text actually says, Moses held up his hand. It doesn't say his hands, plural. He held up his hand. And what was in his hand? It was the rod. This is the rod that sometimes Moses refers to as the staff of God. And what has this rod been through so far? It's the rod that turned into a snake and ate the serpent-like rods of the Egyptian magicians. It is the rod that was used to part the Red Sea on the Exodus from Egypt. It was the rod that was used to strike the rock um, out of which would flow um, life-giving water that would nourish God's perishing Israelites in the desert. This was not Moses' rod so much. It was the rod of God. 
It was the tangible physical presence of God in their midst before they had the Ark of the Covenant. The rod was held up by Moses during the battle as armies normally held up banners. And so it functioned as a banner, a tangible manifestation of God's presence. When that banner or that rod was lifted high, God's people advanced. When that rod or that banner fell down, then God's people retreated on the battlefield. And so it was effectively the symbol of God's presence in their midst. So the story goes on. The story goes on. And Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the sword. And we may say, is that the end of the story of the Amalekites? And the answer is absolutely not. There was an intergenerational struggle would continue for generation and generation and generation and generation. A year later, only reading Numbers 14, the Amalekites joined forces with the Canaanites to repel the Israelite invasion at Kadesh Barnea. When they were in the Promised Land, living under the time of the judges, the Amalekites invaded the Promised Land and they subjugated the Israelites and it was, they were only beaten back by a judge called Gideon in Judges chapter 6. Saul and David repeatedly went to battle against the Amalekites, more on that in a few minutes, and it was an Amalekite who stabbed Saul to death on the final battlefield after Saul fell on his sword, and it was an Amalekite who took the crown off his head. The Amalekites almost, were almost entirely destroyed by Hezekiah in 1 Chronicles 4, and the last descendant of Amalek that we know of was a man called Haman the Agagite, who planned the genocide of God's people but was then caught in his own plans and he himself was hung from a gallows. So the Amalekites, even though Joshua defeated Amalek here, this wasn't the end of Israel's encounter with the Amalekites. So the text goes on to say, the Lord said to Moses, write this as a reminder in a book and recite it in the hearing of Joshua, I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. Now we know from Numbers 32 that Moses kept a daily record of his, what he did during the invasion and during the Exodus story, just like the Egyptian monarchs of his time would keep the official um, uh, annals of, of their kingdom, the records of what the pharaohs would do. And in this passage here, God says to Moses, recite in the hearing of Joshua, indicating that Joshua is already being labeled as Moses' chosen successor. And God says, I will blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. But we know from elsewhere in scripture that it didn't happen right then. In fact, it didn't happen for maybe another, over a thousand years. Now, why would God tell Moses to write this at that point in time, that he will blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven? Well, because Joshua and all Israel needed to know that the final victory was assured. That no matter what happened between that first battle with the Amalekites and Esther and Haman the Agagite, the last encounter we have with the Amalekites, despite the ups and downs, that painful and bloody history of time of oppression and killing and murder, God's people needed to know that at the end of the day, God would triumph. And we need to hear today that yes, in Daniel, for instance, Daniel chapter 12, verse there is a time of trouble coming upon this earth, such as never has been since nations came into existence. We, need to, we know that's happening, but we also need to hear again that Michael will stand up to deliver his people. And when we know from the scripture that Jesus is coming again to deliver his people, it gives us courage to go through the battles that lie ahead of us, does it not? And so when we know the end of the story, we can go through the intervening chapters. Or any of you, if you like read a detective novel, do any of you go to the last chapter? Like I used to read Agatha Christie. Any of you know Agatha Christie? You know, Murder on the Nile and all these like murder mystery books. And as a small boy, I would always go to the last chapter. I wanted to know who did it. 
then I could read the story through thinking, okay, if this person did it, where is, where is Hercule Poirot? Where is he picking up the clues from in the story? Because if I don't see it, then how, do he, how does he see it, okay? So I always go to the last chapter because I want to see what happens and who the murderer is, and then I've already solved it, and the rest of it is, is pretty painless to read the story. But it's important for us, it was important for Israel then to know that at the end of the day, God will triumph. And at the end of the day, in our troubled world, God is going to triumph, and he's going to deliver his people. So no matter what we are going through today, no matter what crises our nation lurches through from month to month, no matter what pain our world is going through, we as Adventists know that Jesus is coming again. Therefore, when men's hearts are failing them for fear, we can stand tall and lift our heads high because our redemption is drawing nigh. So it's a message of encouragement. Even though God says, I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek, he's giving them a promise that you're going to go through centuries of trouble, but God's people are going to win in the end. And so we come to the name of God, and Moses built an altar and called it the Lord my banner. The Lord is my banner, Exodus 17 and verse 15. Jehovah is my banner. The Lord is my banner. The rod of God was held high by Moses as soldiers hold their banners high. And as soldiers follow their banners into battle, Israel had followed the directions of God. Thus the Lord, my banner, became their standard. Where he went, so they went. As he commanded, so they obeyed, and victory was the outcome. But there's a lot more to this story than just the physical battle. So I want to reflect now on the spiritual battle, the battle against Amalek. So the Amalek, the Amalekites... Let's just delve a bit further into who exactly these Amalekites were. Well, we pick up the, the first we encounter the Amalekites is in Genesis 25, 29 through 34. We're familiar with this story. It says, Once when Jacob was cooking a stew, Esau came in from the field and he was famished. Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stuff, for I am famished. Therefore he was called Edom. The word Edom means red, Okay. And if you go to the Dead Sea and you look, at Israel, look on the eastern side of the Dead Sea when sunset comes, because there's so much iron in the hills of, of ancient Edom, it literally shines red in front of you. It's a beautiful sight. So therefore he was called red. Jacob said, first sell me your birthright. And Esau said, I'm about to die. Well, what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. So twice we are told that, that Esau has no time for his birthright. Now what exactly was the birthright that Esau despised? Now he was the oldest son. There was Esau and Jacob. So normally in, in, in ancient times, um, the oldest son would receive a, a double portion compared with what the younger sons would receive. Uh, that happened throughout the Middle Ages um, in many societies around the world. The oldest son would, would receive the primary inheritance from the father, and he would be responsible for the well-being of the wider clan as, as the years rolled forward. But this wasn't the, the birthright that Esau was despising here. What was the birthright of Jacob and Abraham? It was this. It was the promise that God had given to Abraham that in his seed all families of the earth would be blessed. The birthright involved the birth of Christ, the seed of Abraham in particular, through the seed of Abraham in general. The seed of Abraham, that is the Messiah, would redeem lost humanity from our lost condition and restore us to a right relationship with our Heavenly Father. So in Esau, then, is a spirit of total independence from God, you might say a rejection of God's plan of salvation. 
Thus Esau manifested the spirit of Satan. And because he manifested this Satan, God hated Esau. We read about it there in Malachi 1. I have loved you, saith the Lord. He's speaking to God's people here, Jacob, as a collective, God's people. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. And so Jacob was a child of promise, and he accepted what God's purpose for him in life was. Esau had no interest in God's plan of salvation, and he couldn't give two hoots about you know, being reconciled to God. All he was concerned was about material, ple um, physical pleasure right now, getting that full stomach, and the rest of it he, he really wasn't that concerned about. God can do nothing with a man who will not admit that he needs anything from God, like Esau. If you think that you don't need anything from God, there's not a lot God can do for you or with you. Esau rejected God's chosen means of grace. He repudiated man's need for God's intervention and God's salvation. He despised his spiritual birthright. God can do nothing with a man or woman infected with the spirit of Esau. But look at Jacob. He was a seeming failure, was he not? He was a deceiver, he was a liar, he was a cheat, and he was a coward. Yet he accepted God's call in his life, and God changed him into Israel, which means the Prince of God. So Amalek was Esau's grandchild, we see that in Genesis 36, and perpetuated in Amalek was the profanity of Esau, the man who scorned the birthright of salvation, and as such the Amalekites were the first, they were the longest lasting, and they were the most bitter enemy God's people encountered on the long march to the promised land. And so today, we are on our march to the promised land, and we struggle against the flesh. That is our natural fallen condition apart from God as we march towards our own promised land. Verse 16, we go back there in Exodus 17. Uh, he said, a hand upon the banner of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Thus, between God and Amalek, there was to be nothing but perpetual hostility because Amalek represented the spirit of Esau that is total independence from God, a rejection of God's plan of salvation, or to put it in New Testament terms, he represented a life devoted to living according to the flesh and not according to the spirit. So God was at war with Amalek, that is his life that is lived according to the flesh from generation to generation. And God's, in God's opinion, there was nothing good about Amalek. This was his perfect judgment. So we come to Amalek a few verses later in the Bible, in 1 Samuel 15, and we have God commanding um, Saul uh, through Samuel to destroy the Amalekites. And we read the story there, I think most of you are familiar with the story, as he um, took King Agag of the Amalekites alive, that is, Saul did this, but he utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the cattle and of the fatlings and of the lambs and all that was valuable and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they utterly destroyed. Now God had condemned the Amalekites. Everything about the Amalekites was bad as far as God was concerned, but Saul's sin was to presume, presume to see good in that which God had condemned. Well, God has condemned it, but I know better. I'm not gonna pass up the opportunity to get all this material wealth when we wipe out the Amalekites. This was the sin of Saul. And this is the subtle temptation we are all faced with. Because Satan whispers into our ears that maybe we're not quite as fallen as the, as the scriptures point out. That there is something intrinsically good about us. That apart from Christ, there is something salvable in human nature, no matter how bad we may appear on the outside. We hear this re repeatedly at funerals. People always say, 
He was a good man. Spiritually, he was a lost man in need of a savior. But we comfort ourselves in funerals by saying, he was a decent man, he was a family man, he was a good man, as if there is anything intrinsically good within fallen humanity that somehow can commend us to God apart from the sacrifice of Jesus. And so Saul, in defiance of God's command and of God's judgment on the Amalekites, tried to discern between good and evil in that which God had already rejected. And we are also tempted to do the same today. We are sometimes sorry for our individual sins, but we're often loath to recognize our spiritual bankruptcy before God and without God. We face the temptation to combine faith in Jesus' place-taking sacrifice on Calvary with just a little trust in our own goodness in order to stand before God. Yes, I'm in need of a savior, but I also return a faithful tithe. That's gonna stand in my credit. Yes, I need a savior, but I don't yell at my spouse. That's gonna work in my favor. Yes, I'm a, sin yes, I'm a sinner in need of salvation, but look, I, I contribute this and I do this, etc., etc., etc. and we need to do away with this. Our hope of salvation cannot depend on that which God has already condemned, which is a life of the flesh, when he's inviting us to live the life of the spirit. God had said, remember Amalek, and Saul forgot to remember. Saul repudiated God's verdict on Amalek, and now he was to learn in a most personal and bitter way that God's verdict was right. In the final battle with the Philistines in 2 Samuel 1, verse 6 through 8, it was an Amalekite who took Saul's life when he lay wounded after falling on his own sword. And to make matters worse, that young Amalekite then took Saul's crown from his head. Likewise, we compromise with Amalek today in 2022 when we live, when we compromise with the desires of the flesh at our own peril. In our flesh dwells no good thing. Spare it if it will, but it will not spare you. If we presume to find something in the life of the flesh, which God has already condemned, the day will come when it will rob us of the crown of life. And so Jesus encouraged us in Revelation 3.11, Behold, I come quickly. Hold fast to what thou hast, that no man take thy crown, which is exactly what happened to Saul. So am I still offering God the best of my flesh as a seemingly acceptable offering to him? We either choose to live according to the flesh or according to the spirit. This is what makes Christianity more than a religion, more than a philosophy, more than an ethic. It is the promise of Jesus Christ living within you. That is why it is not just an idea. It is not like Buddhism, which is a philosophy. Christianity is different to every other faith out there because it is the promise of the living, risen Son of God living within you. And when he lives within you, or to be in Christ, as Paul puts it, that means redemption. We're brought back from slavery to sin. That is a life of the flesh. But for Christ to be in you, that is known as sanctification. That is God preparing us for eternity. Galatians 5:16. Paul discusses this concept a bit more. He says, live by the Spirit, I say, and do not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now, what exactly does this mean? How do we put this into practice? Simply put, it means that we assume by faith the victory over self and sin which God credits us when we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, and God will then vindicate our assumptions and make it real in our experience. As we receive the Holy Spirit by faith, we are to walk by faith, and God will make real his promises of a changed life and a sanctified life and a transformed character. In our family devotions last night, we read a devotional from Sister White, where she basically says that the greatest the greatest um, proof and advert for the Christian faith is a transformed life. It is not a systematic theology. It is a changed heart. It is a transformed life. 
And this comes when we seek to live by the Spirit and not according to the flesh. In our nation's day, we celebrate the flesh in Pride Month, and that's precisely what God condemns here. We are to live by the Spirit, not according to the fallen desires of the flesh. Satan loves to twist this truth of Scripture. He tempts us by suggesting that we should first try not to fulfill the lusts of the flesh, as in Galatians 5.16, and then we can walk the life of the Spirit, as if the life of the Spirit was a reward for turning away from the life of the flesh. And if we do that, we become so preoccupied with self and cutting this and cutting that and cutting the other from our lives that we end up becoming pride of our, proud of our own accomplishments, which are really is nothing in God's eyes. Satan also seeks to persuade us that walking in the Spirit is the consequence of our own pious endeavors, our own intrinsic holiness, and that through confusing the means with the end, he robs us of victory in the Christian life. So yes, we are to walk in the Spirit, as per Galatians 5.16, in an attitude of total dependence upon Jesus, exposing everything in our lives to him, to his cleansing and his transforming and his sanctifying power. And as the text says, you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. To walk in the Spirit is not a reward of God. It is the means. It is to enjoy today the saving life of Jesus Christ with victory, not just in sin, but victory over sin and the promise of a transformed character. It's not popular for us to talk about it these days, but what does it mean to repent? Why would God ask me to repent if he doesn't want me to be free from that sin in my life? So the sanctified life is the one of a Christian who has accepted the Lordship of Jesus Christ, and now, now they want to turn away from everything which brings pain to their Heavenly Father. And so God does not just save us in our sins, but he wants to save us from our sins. And that is the process of sanctification, the life of the Spirit. We'll come on to that, that shortly in a bit more detail. So then we call, so how is this possible? How do we live this life of the flesh? Let's just drill down that into that in a bit more detail here. Our time is moving on. So we turn to the victorious battle. So we've looked at the physical battle, um, which is the battle of Israel against the Amalekites. We've looked at the spiritual battle, which is either living by the flesh or living according to the Spirit. And now we're gonna to talk to the victorious battle. And uh, we're going to come to Jehovah Nissi, <clears throat> and uh, this, this name of God, the Lord my banner. But we ask ourselves, where does this banner next appear in the scriptures? You know, it's always helpful when you want to develop a theology of something. You need to look through the whole Bible and see where does that word appear. That tells you what the scripture has to say on that idea or that word or that truth. Where does the banner of God next appear in the word of God? Well, it appears in Numbers chapter 20, not 21, verses 6 through 9, and you see it on the screen there. The, the, the uh, Israelites are wandering in the wilderness, and they've started to complain once again. As they indulge the spirit of discontent, they were disposed to find fault even with the blessings of God. This manna tastes awful. Moses is going crazy. God hates us. He's leaving us for these 40 years out in the wilderness. Life was so much better back in Egypt, even as a slave. And so these evil murmurings, these denials of God's goodness in their life, God sent these poisonous serpents into the camp. We read the story there. It says, the Lord sent poisonous serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, we have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. So they recognized their sin. Then they say, pray to the Lord to take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, make a poisonous serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten shall look at it and live. So Moses made a serpent of bronze and put it upon a pole. Whenever a serpent bit someone, that person would look at the serpent of bronze and live. Now, you know, there is a difference. A poisonous serpent is one that if you eat it, it will poison you. 
that's different to a venomous serpent. A venomous serpent means if it bites you, it'll kill you. Okay, so there is a subtle distinction between a poisonous serpent and a venomous serpent. But anyway, in this story here, God commanded Moses to make a bronze serpent and set it high on a pole and invite the people to look and live. That was their instructions. All you have to do is look at the serpent on the pole and you will live. And the word spread through the camp, I imagine, can't you? Look and live. Imagine during the COVID pandemic, let's say that we erected a, gold, a bronze serpent here and Pastor Kelly had a vision from God and said, if you erect a bronze serpent in this church, if people just look at it, even online, they will look and live. And let's say we streamed it live on, on, you know, on Facebook. That Facebook page would have had the most viewings of any internet site during the entire pandemic, yes? Look and live, that's all it took. God has provided the means for your salvation. If you look, and you will live. And that is God's power in your life. So many brought their dying relatives, as the text says, and he urged them to look in obedience and faith to the uplifted bronze serpent, to be healed and to live. And I can imagine, can't you, the urgency of parents bringing their young children or, or adults bringing their elderly parents who'd been bitten and they were dying from the serpent's venom. And they're saying, just look at the bronze serpent, look and live. Some, however, refused to look and continued to lament their wounds, their suffering, their sense of God's injustice, and in their self-absorbed misery, they succumbed to the serpent's venom. Now, the lifting of that bronze serpent was to teach the Israelites an important spiritual lesson. They could not cure themselves of the serpent's venom. Left to themselves, they would all die. God alone could heal, and God alone could bring them life. Yet they were required to show faith in the provision or the means of salvation that God had laid out for them. They must look in order to live. It was their faith that was acceptable to God, and they demonstrated their faith by looking at the uplifted bronze serpent. And those spiritual lessons apply to us today, do they not? They apply to us in the self-same way. We cannot cure ourselves of Satan's sting. We all face the sting of death one day, sooner or later. We cannot cure ourselves of death, no matter how much we try. Left to ourselves, we are all going to perish. God alone can heal us of the sting of sin, which is death, and God alone can give us the gift of eternal life. Yet we are required to show faith in the provision that God has made for us, the means of our salvation. We must also look in order to live. It is our faith that is acceptable to God, not any kind of goodness we think we have within ourselves, and we are to demonstrate our faith by looking to the uplifted bronze serpent. And what did that uplifted bronze serpent point to? Well, we're familiar with the text. As Moses, and this is Jesus speaking to Nicodemus in the dead of night, as Moses lifted up the serpents in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And so that bronze serpent point forward to Jesus Christ, lifted high on Calvary, that all who look in faith to him might overcome the serpent sting of death and have the promise of eternal life. Jesus goes on to discuss this a bit further in John 12. He says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Isn't that a beautiful promise? All people. We were standing before the first service, just in the vestry there, and we were just introducing ourselves to each other, and there was a gentleman from West Africa, there was a gentleman from Europe, there was a gentleman from Australia, and there was a gentleman from America, I think. And we just remarked that among the four of us, we represented four of the world's continents. United in ministry, united in faith, we come from different homes, but we're going to a common future at the New Jerusalem. It was just a reminder that we may come from all different parts of the world, but through faith in Jesus Christ, we are brothers, 
We are sisters, we have responsibilities towards each other, and we're going to encourage each other to get to that heavenly land. And so when I am lifted up, says Jesus, I will draw all peoples to myself. It's a beautiful promise. Truly the sinner who looks to Jesus on the cross of Calvary in faith, believing he died in their place for their sins, receives the gift of eternal life and forgiveness. The sinner lives because he trusts in the means that God has provided for his or her eternal salvation. But you may ask, what about this banner? Where does the banner fit into the story? Why does the, the, the Lord my banner, how does that point forward to the death of Jesus on Calvary? Well, it's quite simply this. The Hebrew word that is used for pole in Numbers 21, verse 8, that you lift the bronze serpent up on that pole, is the word ness. That means it's translated there as a pole. It's translated in, in, the, in our scripture reading today as banner. It is the same word as uh, the, bro the bronze serpent was lifted high on a pole, just as Jesus was lifted high on a cross. It is the same word used for this name of God, Jehovah Nissi, the Lord my banner. Moses lifted the rod of God, it was the banner of God. Je uh, Jesus, the serpent was lifted high on a pole, it was a Nessie, that was the Lord my banner. And Jesus was lifted high on a cross in order that we might receive the gift of eternal life. As the Lord my banner was lifted high on a mountain, giving victory to Israel in their battle and their fight against Amalek. So Jesus was lifted also high on a lonely mountaintop, promising victory over the sin, our sinful flesh and our sinful nature. Wherever the banner or the cross of Christ leads, there we follow. When the banner of Christ or the cross is hidden, we tend to fall back. When under attack, the cross represents our rally point. When planted on top of a hill, a lonely hill outside a city wall, that cross represents a victory won against Amalek or against the sinful flesh and the desires of the flesh. And so as we contemplate this name for God, the Lord my banner, we're actually being invited to contemplate the cross of Christ. It is by his wounds that we are healed and the bite of sin is rendered harmless. This truly is good news, is it not? Solomon wrote about it later when he said, his banner over you is what? His banner over me is love. Very famous from the Song of Solomon's there. So the Lord, my banner, points us forward to the cross of Christ. And when the banner is lifted high, God's people follow. When the banner stands still, God's people rally round. When the banner or the cross falls back or is hidden, God's people fall apart and the battle is, is, goes against us. So our challenge is to keep lifting the cross of Christ high, that people may be drawn to Jesus in love and faith. So what do you say in conclusion here today? Our time is almost up. Well, I... I as I was writing this sermon a few weeks ago, I, <clears throat> I was looking back at my life and I realized that um, since the age of 18, I've been traveling almost consistently around the world. That's, I hate to admit it, that's 32 years of nonstop travel around the world. That's a lot of air miles. Okay, and uh, this, I'm, I'm on a vacation this week and last week and next week. Guess what I'm doing for my vacation? I'm sitting at home doing absolutely nothing. I'm not going anywhere on my vacation other than church. I ain't leaving my home for anything because I crave to sit in my office at home and just look at the grass. You know, this week I was sitting there and two groundhogs ran, ran right in front of me. And I felt very offended at that and I've been looking for them ever since. But, you know, for my birthday, I, for my, it was my birthday on Monday, for these two weeks of vacation, I ain't going anywhere. Like, you want me to go to Chicago for the day? Absolutely not. Should we go and spend the day at the beach? Absolutely not. Do you want to go and visit you know, go and wash Washington or somewhere? Absolutely not. I'm sitting at home because I've traveled for the last 32 years almost nonstop. And what have I learned? There are two laws at work in international travel. 
just as there are two laws at work in our spiritual lives. There's the law of gravity in travel, and there's the higher law of aerodynamics. When I sit on a plane, I'm expressing faith in the higher law of aerodynamics. And in an explosion of power, the engines will thrust the plane down the runway and up into the sky, and I will discover that the higher law of aerodynamics actually sets me free from the law of gravity. And I experience that, that experience happens because I have faith that the plane will take me up, that the law of aerodynamics can conquer the law of gravity. By default, every one of us is born into, and we all daily experience the law of gravity, and we're all held down by this law, but it's only those who with faith in the higher law of aerodynamics, only they will experience the power of that law over the law of gravity when they step forward in faith. Once I'm airborne, as long as I maintain an attitude of faith and dependence upon the higher law of aerodynamics, I do not have to worry about the law of gravity. It's not going to try and pull me, it's not going to pull me down to the ground. It may try, but it cannot. I'm set free from the lower law by the operation of the new and the higher law. And so it is as we live our Christian lives in 2022. We are not called by God to remain living according to the flesh, but we are called to walk by faith in the spirit, in complete dependence and trust in him who lives in us and who died for us. So when you arise tomorrow morning, I want to invite you to invite Jesus to live within you, to cleanse us of our unrighteousness, to change your heart, to renew a right spirit within you, and to empower you through the indwelling of his spirit to live the exchanged life that God wishes for each of us. It is through trusting in God's promises, building my life on the words of Jesus on a daily basis, and looking to him in faith as my sin-bearing and place-taking savior that we will experience the breaking free from the laws of the flesh and soar in the sanctified and exchanged life of the spirit that is merely a foretaste of the wonder of life to come. So I want to challenge you in this coming week. Do not live by the flesh, but live by the spirit. Do not be held back by the laws of gravity, but by faith there is a higher law, the law of aerodynamics, that will set you free from that which holds you back. May God bless you as you soar in the life that God has for you.